Good evening. So Vinoba Children is traveling right now. She's um, in Oregon right now, and then we'll go on to California. So we'll be, be reviewing um, the teachings on the approaching the Buddhist path that Venerable started a, a bit ago. First, though, let's begin with the motivation. And so we're really so fortunate to have the Dalai Lama and Venerable Children teaching us. And we know that access to qualified Mahayana teachers is very rare in this world. And so getting the teachings is the first step. Then we have the opportunity to integrate them into our life. This is how they become part of us. So tonight we can explore some of the first teachings that Venerable Children gave on approaching the Buddha's path and then practice integrating them into our heart by discussing some of the points and applying them to our lives. Doing these activities then uh, will be another step on the path to our full awakening. So let's set that as our motivation for this evening to share together. So looking at the first uh, few pages of this book, uh, in the first chapter, it's um, kind of mind-boggling, actually. His Holiness, just one sentence you could unpack for a few months at least, you know. So tonight what I thought we'd do is go through just some of the first few pages and um, uh, hope that we could have a nice dialogue together about how we could integrate these uh, points into our life and how they, how they would affect us or how they do affect us so that we can uh, really get a deeper understanding of them. So I'm asking for some participation, please. <laughs> that would be very helpful. <laughs> so he begins the book by um, stating that a spiritual path is essential to human life And so all of us in this room and those watching are on this spiritual path. And so consider for a moment and then um, share, if you would, why a spiritual path is essential to your life. What does that mean to you? I was a teacher. I know how that is. The dead space, you mean? (laughs) Right. I was always taught that the students become jumpy before the teacher does, but that's not always the case. (laughs) So for me, I think, first of all, I think defining what a spiritual path is was really important for me. And the word spiritual was really troubling for me for many years, because I really took it as, from the Western perspective, as the realm of the spirit and the realm of the mundane. And it was very difficult for me as a Westerner to look and think, I have to think in these transcendental terms. That was a tough one for me. Mm. And when researching the term spiritual and looking at its origins in spiritus, in the human breath, and its foundation in human character or our personality, it became clear to me that what a spiritual path was for me was a path in the training of character. It was about bringing my character and my personality 
into line with the things that I valued Mm -hmm. such that the transformation took place or continues to take place and um, in a way that I become the kind of person who hopefully with each breath, each aspiration, Mm -hmm. is is bringing about well-being in the world, bringing about happiness, mm-hmm. demonstrating compassion, mm-hmm. those kinds of things. So it's really just a, a path of character for me. Nice. Thank you. Anybody else? I think I'm, I was looking for meaning in life. So not just fulfilling sensual pleasures, mm-hmm. but, yeah, giving it a bigger context, something that touches the heart. Mm-hmm. Something mm-hmm. meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, I resonate with what both of them that was just those two just said. Um, meaning, and I think a big part of what we're doing with Buddhism is building our character. Mm-hmm. But um, for me, it's in I need a spiritual path to be able to really fully embrace and develop the characteristics that I appreciate. Mm-hmm that I appreciate in others and that I want to develop in myself. Mm. And without a spiritual path, I don't feel like I was really doing that as much as I wanted to or even as much as I thought I was. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I think I need a spiritual path to really be looking at myself and seeing what I'm, what my mind is really like, my reality is really like. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice. Thank you. I think for me, um, I came to understand suffering, and there was a part of my mind that always knew that there was something beyond that. And so that's kind of what got me to start looking at what the options were and what the path is. So His Holiness uh, then goes on to describe how advances in medicine and science and technology have done so much to improve the quality of life, but that they have not been able to free us from all suffering and bring secure and lasting happiness. And in fact, uh, they've brought us new problems that we did not face in the past. And so what are some examples of advances in medicine, science, technology that have brought new problems that we didn't uh, anticipate? What are some examples? I guess when I was at school and we were talking a lot about like what are the ethics when new technologies develop, mm-hmm. so like cloning mm-hmm. or even uh, organ harvesting, mm-hmm. right? Like if you can one day grow a body from which you can just harvest organs, yeah. what are the ethics of doing things like that? Mm-hmm. Um, testing on animals, testing on humans. Mm. Yeah, so letting the technology just develop, and I guess people get excited about the possibilities, but if there's no ethical component, then we see a lot of, you know, difficulties. Yeah. 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 Now, um, medicine has the capability of keeping people alive, Mm. when actually, if nature was just being allowed to take control, these people would die. And so families, as you very well know, and maybe you want to speak more about this, are in the terrible situation where if there isn't documentation put out by the person in the form of a living will, 
what happens when a person needs to be put on a ventilator mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. the terrible decision like when is a person removed from life support mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so these are very difficult things mm-hmm. i believe it was in 2016 the whole country in canada decided that it was legal now for assisted death mm-hmm. so this is a very complicated thing and very confusing and now i know of two people personally who chose assisted death mm-hmm. when I'm pretty sure they were actually already dying. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's very complicated. It's hard to sort out, not to point the finger of blame at those people. Yeah. You know, yeah. They wanted to take control of their lives and die in a you know, dignified way, but mm-hmm. there's so many questions. What I thought about was the, all of these different technologies um, like Vinaba Domsho said at the first, it's like, oh, wonderful, good. But I think most most people that are involved in these kinds of things, or most people generally, really don't have the wisdom to see how it's going to kind of roll out and what it is going to end up being. You know, what I thought of, um, there was a uh, article about social media and how it has affected uh, especially developing countries. And um, one of the examples that they used was how those people involved in ISIS started using social media to post the things that they were doing, which then frightened and scared people in that area, and they would withdraw, and then ISIS would go further, you know, into the territories. And so they were using it as kind of a, a war propaganda thing. And many of the things that they were posting weren't even accurate, but, you know, people would see it and believe it, and then they would react in certain mm-hmm. ways. And so, you know, when people first started the social media, they never thought that it would be used in these kinds of ways at all. So it's, it always reminds me of kind of, you know, we've let the genie out of the box, and now how do we, how do we get control of it? How do we work with it now that it has influenced and permeated, you know, all of society, and how it has brought this world to become such a small place now um, because we get information from everywhere. So very interesting. Along with that, I think of just uh, information overload or just the distraction, beginning maybe with um, with TV. Mm-hmm. Long before we had mm-hmm. this Internet thing going on, people were just spending way too much time in front of the television Maybe maybe a really nice tool if you were able to not be addicted to it. Mm-hmm. And now we have people that can't put the cell phone down or yeah. or can't get away from it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there's just so much, so much going on yeah. around us. Not that we weren't always since beginningless time constantly distracted by our sense senses, but um, here we have this whole different way of dealing with that yeah 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 and how easy it is to get lost with these kinds of technologies it's like it drives our mind where we're going to go instead of us driving it it's so interesting how that happens what comes to mind to me is the 
Well, the first way I'd explain it is like Teflon pans. <laughs> Things we thought were going to be so great, and then we find out that they're flaking off and causing problems, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but more maybe insidious is the knowledge that we've gained in human behavior, which could be used in a beautiful way to benefit, but then is turned into like the science of consumerism. Yes. And now you walk into stores and there's like so many brands of soap, of soap and shampoo and toothpaste that you can hardly figure out what to buy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's just like overwhelming. Consumerism on, you know, on adrenaline or something. Yeah. yeah. With a report of the scientists that the UN um, just released about um, the kind of timing crisis of global of climate change, mm-hmm. uh, all of the stuff that we're putting into the air at the beginning, we thought, was going to was helpful for us, and that's why we're so hooked to it and so hard to stop. Our whole, you know, society is built on what those advantages and things have been, and yet yeah. they're also destroying the place we live. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, unforeseen consequences by a zillion. Yeah, just and that always then reminds me of the level of our really our ignorance that we have no idea about the consequences of all of these things, you know? It just is not. Because many, many really intelligent people are involved in all of this, you know? And none, nobody can see this. It's kind of astounding. So His Holiness then goes on to talk about how Buddhism, Buddhist uh, spiritual practice involves transforming our mind instead of looking externally for happiness. And so we can see how looking externally for happiness, what those consequences are, just in what we've been talking about. This is such a fundamental point in our practice. And I don't know about you, but it gets lost in my mind. I think I have it very clearly, and I've got it, and then it gets lost again. I get hooked into something external and lose my awareness of what I'm doing. Um, So this is so deep in the mind, so deep. So His Holiness quotes the Buddha. He says, the world is led by mind and drawn along by mind. All phenomena are controlled by one phenomenon, mind. And then he goes on to say that subduing the afflicted aspects of our mind, our experience of the world is transformed. If we only seek to change the external environment and people in it, we continually meet with frustration and disappointment. And also I would add that we create conditions that are harmful without even understanding that that's what we're doing or going to do. So, the obstacles that we aim to eliminate are not external, but are afflictive mental states. The tools we use to counteract them are also mental. So, compassion, wisdom, and other realistic and beneficial attitudes and emotions that we consciously cultivate. And so, the teachings of the Buddha gives us instructions regarding what to practice, what to abandon. And so... 
we use this practices to transform our mind. And the mind includes not only our intellect, but also all our cognitions, emotions, other mental factors. It refers to all our consciousnesses, sensory and mental, and to the variety of mental states we experience. And although our body is important, satisfying it does not bring lasting happiness. And so we can see, if we contemplate, that the sensory level of experience is mainly temporary. So we can see a beautiful scenery, for example, but so temporary. When finished, the only thing left is the memory of it. But there are some experiences on the mental level, not dependent on sensory experience, and the pleasure that comes from them lasts much longer. So it's important to realize that there are two level of levels of experiencing happiness and unhappiness. One is the sensorial level, which is very temporary, and the other mental level is much deeper. So give some examples in your own experience of uh, what you've experienced on the mental level that was deeply pleasurable and you know, had some lasting effect. Would be some examples. I think my first meditation experiences uh, um, where I had a retreat and I could first time see, you know, calming the mind and how the effect was after the retreat on my mind Mm -hmm. that I was, um, that I had much more potential than I thought before. And yeah, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so on that kept me going and. Mm-hmm. Being more interested in looking deeper. Mm-hmm. Forgiveness was, um, I think, a very satisfying mental experience. And that, um, yeah, free my mind to do other more positive things. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah, nice. Yeah. I think standing in the meditation hall. Uh, on my ordination day where we were doing the incense offering and beginning the whole process just standing there in that that coat just knowing that this a whole thing that I had aspired to, to to help manifest that I created the causes and I had support to be able to do that just this feeling of open just open to whatever this mm-hmm. was going to bring mm-hmm. but that it felt right so there was a lot of mental joy, there was a lot of clarity, a little bit of nervousness, but it was very much an internal process of something really important. I think that it's really important that we train ourselves to identify these mental pleasures generally come uh, from applying the Dharma to our mind and then experiencing the result of that. Um, so whether it's um, like what came to my mind was three-month retreat and what my mind is like when I start and what it's like in the middle and what it's like at the end and then what it's like a month later even and to see the profound effect of going deeply internal and using just mental methods to touch you know, get closer to reality and to understand myself better. We're so habituated to 
all of the things external, that to counter that, one of the methods is to really get clear about what mm, practicing in a mental way, how that's going to bring a lasting, pleasurable result. And it's only going to get deeper and more profound over time. And I think, if you think about it, before you started practicing and compare that to how it is now for you, would you not say that your peace of mind is more accessible and that your pleasure in the mental realm uh, is more also pleasurable and accessible? I found that ethical conduct and has changed how I see myself and changed my relationship to myself in that doing no harm, I really, I think that's the point of the precepts and many of the practices and I've been able to become much more gentle with myself and much more forgiving and open and relaxed. Mm-hmm. So it's completely transformed how I relate to myself. Yeah. And that's been extremely rewarding. And powerful. So prior to studying and practicing Buddhism, when I would have disturbing thoughts and emotions that would begin to spiral, mm-hmm. I would rush off to my best friends, Ben and Jerry. And after beginning to practice Buddhism, and it was actually after my first meditation experience where I sat and watched the flow of the mind, and it was in the very first five minutes that the dharma of impermanence really became clear to me, that the mind just kept changing. And that was so liberating for me, so that when those disturbing emotions, those disturbing thoughts would enter my mind, I knew I could rely on the recognition and the reality of impermanence, take a breath, and they'd be gone. You know, And if not immediately, in a short period of time, and sadly for Ben and Jerry, I don't rely on them quite as much anymore, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Good, good illustration. When I when I first started living by the five um, lay precepts, um, the first one, not to kill. I lived where there was a lot of mosquitoes, and I stopped killing mosquitoes. And I would um, let one land on my arm and walk outside and give him a little blow, and he'd be gone. <laughs> and um, I realized. And this was before I even took the precepts. I just decided to start living by them. Mm-hmm. And I realized how that was changing my mind and making my mind more gentle towards others. Because if there's something there, that this little creature that would annoy me, and I used to react with, um, with deadly force. Yeah. And then I was yeah. instead being concerned with it. Yeah. And something, I think when I, um, when I see kindness amongst other people Mm -hmm. if I receive kindness or if I'm able to give kindness I feel a lot of mental joy Mm -hmm. and um, Mm -hmm. the the meditations that meta meditations and the meditations Mm -hmm. we do for developing bodhicitta Mm -hmm. also I feel that Mm -hmm. I feel a lot of joy with those and I feel a lot of um, 
um, lasting effects. Yeah, yeah, nice. I think that often we maybe enter a spiritual path and we learn what to do and we start doing it. But sometimes, because of how our minds work and what we're habituated with, we don't actually take in how we're changing, what we're doing different. And if we don't take it in, then we're not accessing the joy that it feels when we do change. We have to kind of acknowledge it. And if we don't acknowledge it, you know, maybe it's something that you check off or, you know, but it isn't connected to what we're actually doing. And so it's so important to let ourselves acknowledge the conscious choices that we are making internally and how it is affecting our heart, and then, by extension, um, those around us. And I don't know about you, but I am conditioned to not look at that, but instead look at when I make the mistake, and I let my afflictions run, and what that then results in, you know, the harm around me and harm for myself, that I am so habituated to look at that and that is just you know half of the coin or less yeah so it is up to each one of us to open our hearts to what we're doing and there isn't a person in this room or probably anybody watching this that by doing that is going to become a selfish jerk you know That's just, I mean, that's always the fear, I think. But that's not what's going to happen. Again, that's another conditioned idea that we hold that has no basis of any logic at all. Along those lines, I think one of the joys um, of Buddhist practice is recognizing things that are more in line with reality, like the fact that everyone really wants suffering, I mean, sorry, wants happiness mm-hmm. at the very root, at the very fundamental level, and that we're uh, very unskillful in accomplishing mm-hmm. lasting happiness in particular. Mm-hmm. But just that awareness and, you know, when, when I can maintain that awareness that people are doing everything they do, every single thing they do out yeah. of a wish to find happiness, it, it brings a greater understanding and leeway of, of you know, the human condition. Yeah. It kind yeah. of explains, I th- for me, there's a, a, a sense of joy that comes from understanding why things are the way they are. Way they are yeah. And also um, a sense of freedom that comes from at least understanding even a little bit about how karma works mm-hmm. um, can be so, for me, has been so liberating in my mind, like when things happen especially when they're, you know, on the suffering end of the scale, to think about, okay, this has a cause. It's coming about because of a cause. It's now Mm -hmm. finishing. And thinking in those terms um, brings a kind of peace and and freedom to the mind. So there are many, many examples like that, aren't there? Of Mm -hmm. uh, You know, that there's a saying that the only time we suffer is when we're out of touch with reality. And unfortunately, that's a lot of the time. But these teachings give us a chance to become much more aligned with both conventional reality and, you know, slowly, slowly, ultimate reality mm-hmm. as well, 
which naturally brings more peace, more yeah. Yeah. Uh, freedom to the mind. Yeah. Um, so on, working from that, I think uh, one of when I realized I could create my future and my own happiness through the power of my mind, that was really quite something. Mm-hmm. Um, when I felt it kind of through the teachings and my own experience of um, through a little bit of practice, I could see that I was kind of like building a foundation of my own happiness through acting ethically and trying to work with my afflictions and that little by little it works as um, mm-hmm. I get more familiar with it. And I, I kind of felt this increasing foundation of I have the ability to transform into something much more than when I feel caged in by my confusion or my afflictions. That yeah. that knowledge um, was very affirming, yeah, mm-hmm. very motivating. Yeah. yeah. So we, I think we live in a culture and certainly an economic system that teaches us that happiness equates with feeling good. And that we are supposed to feel good at every moment. And any moment we don't feel good, we just need to go out to some market or other. And what I would be interested in, because I think there's a lot of confusion about what happiness is. And I would be interested in hearing um, a response from others when we speak about happiness and we speak about that durable happiness that we might suggest Buddhism aids us to accomplish, Mm -hmm. I'd be interested to hear some descriptions of what we mean when we say, I am happy, Mm -hmm. or I'm experiencing happiness from a Buddhist perspective that might be different from, I just happen to be feeling good because I'm eating ice cream. Mm -hmm. I was thinking this, about my example for this question, and it kind of fits your question. Um, and I'm thinking this is like, I don't even know how many years ago, 15 more, no, many more than that. And I still have the same lasting uh, good feeling about it. And it was an experience of actually concerted motivation to benefit another person that was done with a lot of, uh, foresight, effort, and clarity, and even help. And then having, uh, especially one experience in this situation of you really relying on the Buddha's, on the, on the compassion and love of Chinrazi in a moment of difficulty in trying to help another person. Mm-hmm. And the joy in my mind about that uh, having done that has never actually is always kind of stuck with me and it, what it makes me think about is like you know when we talk when we have the aspiration of bodhicitta to be a benefit to others what that would really feel like when they talk about moving from a joy to a joy that's the kind of joy that is really different from yeah. You know, sensory things. Yeah. There was yeah. nothing sensory about that. Mm-hmm. That was completely mm-hmm. uh, emotional, mental um, experience. But it, what I like about it is that I realize how much effort it took on my part. And that seems realistic to me in the sense of um, how 
since we have so many things in the way, so many afflictions in the way, the effort we need to make to get those out of the way so that we can actually like take delight in giving, for yeah. example. That's yeah. the one I, that comes to mind because that mm-hmm. was an example of giving mm-hmm. that was delightful yeah. and completely embedded in the Buddhist practices. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, mm-hmm. I have a little glimmer, that little glimmer that never left from that is, I think, the spark that I want to try to maintain yeah. and realize that that could be what it might feel like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Although it was maybe 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. 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 Those experiences are very precious, I think. And I think that they instruct us in the power of the mind in a way that you don't forget it and you kind of know what you're tapping into. You know, it, it, no matter how hard it is, but and something to having the heart so open, mm-hmm. but completely in a way of using one's resources. Yeah, it wasn't spontaneous. Uh-huh. I mean, that happened in a way, but all of uh-huh. that took effort for that moment to happen. That's really clear to me. Mm-hmm. That moment never would have happened. That exchange and that. That event never would have happened that way without all that led to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, responding to Jay's question and relating to your previous point too, um, I remember the first few times I went on retreat, the level of just mental quiet and peace from being mm-hmm. in silence came as just a huge mm-hmm. shock because I was mm-hmm. so externally focused. Mm-hmm. So just being able to get quiet, um, learning to accept whatever was arising because I was always trying to be something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, I can drop it. Wow. So relaxed, peaceful, quiet. And I remember one retreat I went on where we were like, you could take a temporary ordination. And I was, so I was bald. I was wearing some weird white outfit, living in a dorm with five women in a room with no heater. And I was scrubbing the toilet at four in the morning and out of this world happy. Mm-hmm. It was so bizarre. Mm-hmm. And it was very disconcerting because it made me ask myself, like, what did I call happiness in the past? And have I only been happy for maybe 10 days in my life, which is the total of the retreat, right? And it really shook me up that Uh way. I think my first experience of real happiness was a feeling of gratitude, Mm. deep appreciation for Mm -hmm. everything that I had experienced in life and... Also, it's a lot with not wanting, you know, you actually, you feel like you have more than enough. Yeah. That's what comes with gratitude. Yeah. So I really think they're very close, at least in my mind. So that's, you know, no more grasping mind. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. I think in whatever circumstance that we touch the power of the mind, whatever it is, it brings such joy because it gives us a glimpse into what is possible in such a you know profound way um i experienced um a surprising moment of happiness uh when i went to um the prison uh, airway heights mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there was a moment where i was speaking with one of the inmates and um there was uh, just such a 
connection, human to human, being to being. And I just felt this amazing warmth in my heart. Mm. And I just saw in that glimpse the powerful effect of connecting with another being yeah. without any of the things that we, the garbage that we piled up on mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. you know. Um, it was just a moment, but uh, it has, it really touched me deeply and it has, yeah, uh, yeah it's really made a mark yeah. that, that that was, that I had that experience. I'm quite grateful. Yeah. And I think for us to um, keep this in mind so that we don't get bowled over by the waves of the way that we've been conditioned to look for the, you know, the hit from outside, for the, you know, the goody from outside, but to keep bringing it back that it's right inside us. And we know how to touch it if we just slow down enough and allow ourselves uh, to do that. And I think it comes back to this thing of reminding ourselves of the pleasure of the mental states that we can, uh, that last longer and that are so much more nurturing than anything outside, you know. At least uh, looking at this content, I certainly came to, to some clarity about that that would be really helpful for my mind to uh, remember the potential. And, you know, we say that a lot, but what does that mean? That means that I have some experiences working with mental, not sensory, that affected me greatly and deeply. It's good to remember that every day. I think it really then keeps us aligned with the direction that we want to go instead of the other way, which is kind of treading water and seeing how we got bumped off the path we want to be on, you know. That's a whole different kind of mindset, you know. That's the after-the-effect kind where, you know, pulled to the sensory and then feeling the dissatisfaction and the suffering of that and then bringing ourselves back again versus remembering our potential and starting out that way in the morning. Hmm? Yeah, it's a whole different way to approach it, I think. I think about when I have moments of physical suffering and yet I don't have um, my not um, overwhelmed by them, and I can still be have a, some sense of mental peace or clarity or or even happiness. Mm -hmm. And um, I think about the story of the the multiple arrows. You know, mm -hmm. if I have if I'm feeling ill, that's one arrow. When I'm moping about it, that's another arrow. And when I'm mm -hmm. bummed out because I can't get up and do what I want to do and it's another arrow, you know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think about the, the power of the mind there yeah. because yeah. there's been many times when I've had some, some physical illness from a bee sting to being sick and still been able to keep a jolly mind. 
Yeah, this kind of brings us to the next point uh, that His Holiness started talking about. So he talks about the purpose and existence and the meaning of life. He says, all of us want happiness and no one wants misery. I believe the meaning and purpose of our life has to do with eradicating the causes of pain and increasing the causes of happiness so that this deepest wish in the heart of each and every living being can be fulfilled. The purpose of our life is happiness and peace and internal feeling of well-being. To bring that about, of course, we need some material development and proper education, but we also need spiritual development. By spirituality, I do not mean religious belief or rituals. For me, spirituality refers to the basic good qualities of human beings, such as compassion, affection, gentleness, and humility. When these qualities are well established in our hearts, we will have more peace of mind and will contribute to the happiness of others. Someone can be happy without religious beliefs, but not without these basic good qualities. He goes on to say, due to our imagination, we are much more sensitive on a mental level and experience so much joy and misery that is created by our mind. Because mental suffering is created by the conceptions in our mind, countermeasures that are likewise mental are important. Toward this end, human beings have developed various religions, philosophies, psychological theories, and scientific hypotheses. So when I read that, it just brings some joy to my mind. Again, that, you know, as a, as a, as a human wholeness, we are working to uh, understand and eradicate this suffering that we uh, keep bumping into. And so again, this thing about all of us have the same concern to be happy, to have a happy life, and that we deserve to have a happy life. But you know, in our lives we have many unpleasant things and obstacles that happen. And so one category is pain due to physical causes like sickness and growing older. And the other category is mainly on the mental level. If on the physical level everything is comfortable, but our mind is not calm and afflictions are running, then we are not happy. So this physical level of satisfaction or comfort cannot bring us inner peace. So power, fame, having a lot of money, all these things, they cannot bring inner peace. Anything external cannot bring inner peace. And we can see some people with few resources that still, um, on an inner level, very strong, very happy. If we have inner satisfaction, we can bear any type of difficult physical suffering and can transform it with practice. So between physical and mental pain, mental pain is much more severe. This is because physical discomfort can be subdued by mental comfort. Physical discomfort can be subdued by mental comfort. But mental discomfort cannot be eliminated by physical comfort. This is so important. So mental happiness is not so dependent on the external means, but only really on internal way of our thinking. 
And so this kind of reminds me again of how Venerable Sompton was talking about people that are um, having pain and are getting close to death, that they want somebody to take them out of their misery and they want to do this assisted suicide thing. And this is a person that has some physical discomfort and a ton of mental discomfort. And it's so sad to me because we can work with our minds and not shoot all the arrows, like you were saying. We are configured in a way that we can work with any physical pain or malady that we have. And I know this for a fact because I have seen it in many people in all of my experience uh, working with uh, people in you know hospitals and such. And if a person is willing to work with their mind, they can tolerate anything. It's okay. So it is the mental overlay that brings us such suffering. Such suffering. And it's so important that we take note of that and and when our bodies are doing whatever they're doing, that we look to see what arrows we're uh, shooting at ourselves, you know. And, of course, this takes some practice. But um, what better practice to prepare us for death than this? What better practice? And so can people think about... Um, times when you were ill or had some some kind of physical thing going on and how you're were you able to see how your mind compounded that and made the suffering so much worse yeah is there anybody that can't think of that <laughs> yeah and so you know when we're in the thick of that what do we need to do? We need to start having some gentle, compassionate talk with ourselves. You know? And the first step of that is acceptance. This is what is. This is not what I want, but this is what is. And that step is the most important. And once we can start accepting it, then our mind opens up to start working with it. And we have, there's many methods to work with, like pain, you know. You go into the middle of it. You start doing that, and pretty soon the middle's gone. Where did it go? It's gone. And so you start getting this idea about the impermanence of it. And so after a while, you start chasing it around your body, and then pretty soon it's kind of gone, you know. So you can see how just working with mental, we can start working with the physical maladies that we experience. And I think, you know, not wanting to look at that or having this idea that, you know, I'm not going to have that is not so helpful. Not so helpful. Any comments about this? You think it's baloney? <laughs> no? And so just start training ourselves to work with when we have some pain. You know, do you know now how you work with pain when it comes, or sickness? 
Could you even articulate that? My very initial reaction is this shouldn't be happening. Yeah. It's yeah. an immediate push away mm-hmm. of uh, this shouldn't be happening because fortunately I haven't had too many chronic pain or things like that. So I, I have the reaction of when it comes, it's like this isn't my normal out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whereas uh, in, in the last few years when I have had some digestive problems that cause quite a bit of pain, I'm, I notice now that I'm much more curious about when that starts happening and I watch it and I'm a bit more impartial because I, kind of, I know I can't do anything about it. I know getting in a wig doesn't help anything and so I can work with it mm-hmm. better. But when pain starts happening in other areas that I haven't accepted yet, mm-hmm. that's just being part of what is, Mm -hmm. I don't cope as well. Mm -hmm. I often think about the story that His Holiness told in one book, I don't remember what book that was in, but he had a uh, perforated bowel. He had a hole in his intestine. And there's probably nothing more painful than that. And they were driving him to a hospital in India somewhere, and he was perforated profoundly or profusely sweating and, you know, uh, doubled over in the back seat. And, of course, the roads, every time they hit a bump, you know, it's like, ah. And he described how he um, realized what he was doing by being so tight and just, uh, you know, hunkered down. And he started looking out of the window and seeing little kids that were very thin and had no resources and were, you know, hungry and begging and such. And he started doing Tong Lin with them. And he noticed so quickly how the intensity of his pain left him. It left him, you know. And so we all have that ability to do that, but we have to practice it. It doesn't come just doing it once. Um, You know, we have to continue to practice. And again, it comes back to, I think, for me anyhow, it comes back to some confidence in the power of the mind. Some confidence in the power of your mind, of my mind, you know. Instead of, again, the knee-jerk, which is something external, you know, got to get something out there, something, something, you know, but to work with the power of the mind. And of course, we have to have some wisdom. We can't just do that and ignore, you know, I'm not going to watch myself bleed to death and work with the power of the mind. You know, I'm going to put pressure on the wound and blah, blah, you know, all these things. But, you know, but, but to keep in mind that we have so much resource right inside of us, you know. And we can see that, you know, when we uh, watched uh, Achala and, and Manjushri die here, you could see how they were working with themselves, you know. They, it was just acceptance, 100% acceptance. That's what they did. They just accepted, you know. And... Their deaths were fine. Their deaths were fine, you know. At the very end, Achala put his hand up like, you know, when you're starting to sink. And, you know, he went through, you could see him go through those stages. But before that, he was just fine. And we had a retreat going on in here. And 
and um, he was in. Oh, it was a cat. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> yeah, for those that, yeah. <laughs> this was not one of the monastics here. <laughs> uh, anyhow, he so he when he got sick, and you know he was here in this room in a basket, and we had a retreat, and we thought, oh, you know, this is going to be kind of disturbing. So we put him in a, a room down the hall, and that guy drug himself back here and was right in the basket. He wanted to be in the middle of where all the people were, you know. And he shouldn't have had the strength to do that, but he did it, you know. So the power of the mind, you know. He knew the place to be, you know. It was just beautiful. And that's a cat. Not just any cat, yeah. Yeah, but still, yeah. One thing that's a little hard um, is that, you know, you're talking about external things and not kind of relying on them. But what's hard sometimes is like, for instance, when I've had problems with fibromyalgia, mm-hmm. the problem feels like you're, um, it is internal. Mm-hmm. You know, like this is your body and it feels like a prison it used to sometimes feel like a prison. The experience was you know, like a prison. I want to get away from this body. Yeah. You know, and yeah. it's been interesting to watch how much that's changed by learning how to work with that through my mind. Yes. And it's, at first I thought, oh, I'm just calming myself with mm-hmm. breathing meditation. And that's, and it was helpful. Mm-hmm. I learned this from a mm-hmm. fibromyalgia patient. She turned me on to like a website and they were using breathing meditation for this. But over the years, was as I've experimented with it, led me to understand how much of that experience is actually from anxiety that mm-hmm. ramps it up. Yeah, and yeah, it's just kind of interesting now because sometimes from my experiences, sometimes it's like an attack. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. like got a mm-hmm. a beginning, a middle, and an end, and I can watch the whole thing in my meditation <laughs> session. Yeah, but. What's different is that time has gone by as I've learned how to just relax with it and um, and do things that I actually think, I didn't think of it this way, but Venable Children said that that's like a meta kind of practice in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a way of actually just watching and allowing. Yes. And it is a big thing about acceptance, I think, and that yep. keeps you out of like the anxiety thing which ramps everything up. Yep. Knowing that this thing I've watched this thing happen so many times. Now I it doesn't like phase me at all anymore because yep. now I'm like, oh I'm just gonna watch this thing go through. Yep. You know, and yep. then it does its it runs its little course. Yep. And I don't have to get like on board with yep. it mentally yep. in a yep. way that I used to before. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. And, um, yep. But I think one thing that really helped in that was, one. T- it surprised me one time, is one time I was following an instruction in a meditation manual of dealing with pain where you smile at it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was mm-hmm. like, it was so funny because it just cleared it. Yep. And I was yep. like, I asked, that's yep. what I asked Venerable about. And she said, she yep. said well, that's, that's love. Yeah. I was like, really? (laughs) But it's kind of, now I'm thinking, I'm thinking, yeah, there is something that is loving about that. And our our body even knows it, you know, it's it's the mind-body connection. Where they say, you know, in Buddhism says, the connection between the body and the mind is the breath. 
and there may, and I'm sure there's something to that, but there's also this connection of the feeling, yeah, you know, yeah. And, and what we do with that. Yeah. Yeah. And so sending love towards a feeling that is unpleasant, yep, you know, helps to keep the mind from going on some tracks that make everything worse. Yep, exactly. Yep, yep. And we have, we always have the opportunity to work with it that way. It's so interesting. And to, it's interesting to see how, what we choose to do with what the body is doing. You know, it's so interesting. It's so interesting. And, and often we don't even think we have choice. It's like, this is what it is. It sucks. I hate it. And now the day is really messy, you know. And, and that's ugh. when the body feels like you're, in, that's when you can feel like you're in a prison. Because yep. you can't yep. really, you can't just walk out of your body, you know. Yep, yep, yep. But I think what's, uh, that just made me realize is that, um, and I've seen this in my, in my previous work, that it really helps to know when you're having fear. Yes. And a lot of times people don't, Yes, actually. And I've seen yep. people where they thought they were malingers, for example, in mm-hmm. work injuries. Mm-hmm. But actually in working with them, they weren't malingers at all. They had yeah. a lot of fear going fear. on that they yep. weren't able to recognize. Yep. And I have a lot of difficulty recognizing fear, so yep. I can relate yep. to yep. that. And I, you know, I think it's, I feel like you have to be on the lookout for yes. some of these things that you know that you come yes. to learn through, through experience that you have difficulty recognizing. Like I have a list. Yep. Hopes, expectation, hopes, expectations, and fears yep. trip me up. Yep. And yep. so I feel like knowing that, I have to be on the lookout for that when certain disturbing experiences come up. Yes, yes. Like as a being proactive in a way. Yes, yeah. Or another way to say it is, I have this idea in my mind of how things are going to go, and I'm experiencing this opposite thing now. And so if it's of body, then it's easy to be fearful or to get discouraged or to get angry with it instead of you know coming back and recognizing those responses and turn those responses. This thing about we all, all we have to do is put an opposite one in there, like, you know, let me smile at it. Mm-hmm. It's going to change it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we can understand that, but if we don't do it, we're never going to get that experience. It takes the experience of that. And to not feel, for me, some of my language sometimes is like, don't be victimized by your aging body. How silly. Accept it. This is what it does. This is, I'm right on track. <laughs> I'm right on track. Add to yours, one that I use that's like that is back, lower back pain is not on the list of things that takes you out of a precious human life. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, look yeah. at what gives you a precious human life. Look what's not on that list. All these things that yeah. we think are such big problems that are keeping us from practicing yep. or doing this or doing that. Yep. None yep. of those are anywhere found yep. in yep. the freedoms and fortunes. Yep. yep. And I would say, too, to start working with what the body is doing the earliest you can is really very helpful. <laughs> Instead of waiting until, you know, this thing about, I'm young and my body's fine and I don't want to talk about it and don't you know what a bummer don't don't tell me about this and you know don't work with it that way yeah start getting to know how you can work with whatever your body is doing 
from the toothache to the stub toe, whatever it is, to not being able to sleep, whatever it is. Because then we're tapping into the power of the mind again, you know? Yes, we have new days coming up that are a great practice and that purify and it's all working with mind and it really helps the body, yes. Yeah, and that is an interesting experience because, you know, we uh, fast a lot and we're very active and it's like you think, oh my gosh, how am I going to be able to do this? I'm going to drop dead or I can't do this or it's impossible. And you get in there and you start doing it. All you have to do is just follow it. And I don't know, for me, my mind is the happiest ever. I have more energy than I do in the day-to-day or after I got a lot of sleep or something and three, you know, mini meals or whatever. So why is that? So it's so interesting. So we're working with the mind. It's so interesting. It's called the Nune. It's a, it's a Chen Rezi purification practice that's very powerful, extremely powerful. So when we think about the emotional level, um, some emotions, as soon as they arise, cause us to lose our peace of mind. Um, they not only destroy our peace of mind at the moment, but they're very destructive in terms of then how we end up acting and how we end up speaking. Um, so we know about all that. yeah. But again, to think about the, the other kinds of emotions that can bring us more strength and tranquility. And so to allow ourselves to consciously turn the mind to the other to the other, to the light side from the dark side, you know, I think of it that way sometimes, you know. Okay, my mind is in a really poopy place. Can I bring it to the light side? What is that, you know? And so what is that? You know, that's compassion, isn't it? Loving kindness, generosity. And I have to start with me first and then go out to the others. Have to start with me first. And so there's a lot of internal work for a long time, at least for me, you know, that's why, you know, I really can't help other people very much. I, it's all about what I'm doing with this, what's going on internally here. And of course, what we're so conditioned to is when we seek peace or happiness, we're looking outward, externally. And so then I was thinking about, well, what is external peace? What does that mean? What is external peace? Then, you know, I think, well, you know, it's kind of the, absence of, you know, violence around us or something, you know. But then you think, well, you know, I can be in a place or there's been times in history where there's really no overt violence going on, like a big war or something, but there isn't peace because, you know, people are posturing and governments are posturing based on fear. And so, you know, I don't do something because of what they're going to do and they don't do something because what I'm going to do. So, you know, so this whole fear thing, it doesn't have to be overtly violent, you know, what's going on. Um, so again, we have to keep coming back to genuine peace comes from inner peace. So that's one of the things that's so wonderful at the Abbey. We all have this shared idea that when there's conflict, we're going to find a peaceful solution. And we do that through dialogue. We do that through dialogue. And, you know, we use NVC as, uh, as one of the ways. Uh, other things too, but NVC. And I think that it all, all of what we do here, because we have that value, it, 
It involves warm-heartedness, respect for others, having the attitude that others' lives are as important as our own, having the motivation to resist causing harm to others. And so from that, then we put in the hard work of trying to work with what my mind is doing when I'm being reactive to what someone else did. You know, that's the work. His Holiness says that as humans, we always have different points of view in our interactions with others. But based on strong concepts of me and they, then in addition, we get the concepts of my interest and your interest. On that basis, we can even get war. We think that the destruction of my enemy will bring about my victory. But now there is a new reality. We are heavily interdependent on each other from the economic point of view and from the ecological point of view. So the concepts of we and they are no longer relevant. Those that we considered they now have become part of we. So the key factor to developing peace of mind is compassion, based on the recognition that we are over 7 billion people on this planet, and all of us people have the same right to happiness. Based on that, we take everybody seriously. And on that basis, then, we should be able to establish external peace. He also goes on to say that it's also helpful to remember why difficulties arise even when we work so hard to avoid them. It's due to our ignorance. From our limited viewpoints, we can't see the whole picture of reality. We, on, we see only two dimensions, but this is not enough. We need to be able to see things in three, four, or six dimensions. We need to calm our minds first in order to investigate objectively. So what would that mean, to see in more than just two dimensions? That's so interesting. What does that mean to you when you hear that? One of the things that's always struck me is when you are talking to someone and they say, well, can you be more objective? And they say, give me both sides of the argument. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's like, wait a minute, there are just two? You know, and yeah. for me, it's thinking beyond that dualism yep. of whether it's two sides in yep. politics yep. or whether it's male-female yep. and thinking just beyond that and recognizing yep. there's an incredible diversity in every issue that we're considering. Yep. yep, yep. So the dependent arising, isn't it? That we have to start working with our minds to see whatever situation is unfolding in front of us as a dependent arising, not just their, you know, them and me. And to get our minds to do that when we're in that dance of their, them and me. You know, how do we, how do we shock ourselves out of that, break ourselves out of that? You know, again, it takes practice. So then uh, His Holiness talks about the different kinds of uh, human be beings on this planet, the three groups. Those that are not interested in religion, those who believe and practice a religion, and those who are actively hostile to religion. So I was thinking about working with this a little bit in terms of 
you know, those who are not interested in religion, so they're concerned principally with their day-to-day lives, especially with financial security and material prosperity. So how would you approach a person of this group if you wanted to connect with them? First, what would you do internally? And then what would your intention or motivation be when talking with them? You know, to me, this is how we start making these things operational, you know? Because especially what's going on in this country right now, it's so divided, it's so us and them. And it's up to me to practice not the us and them if I want to have external peace and internal peace. It's up to me. And I would say it was up to all of us to do that. But how do you do that? Do we separate and discount and disconnect? Even if we're not saying things that are negative, but we just are not connected to them? That is not helpful. So to start looking at people that are so different from us and and take the step forward, what would that be like? What would that be like? It's funny to think of this group as very different because I was that person for a long time, right, who didn't have any religious practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess for me, I often talk to people about their families, mm-hmm. things that they can immediately relate to, people they care about. And then from there, I think it just opens the door to all the yeah. common human problems you will immediately get to attachment, aversion. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, having... Yep. This common humanity. Yeah. 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 So again, the things that, like His Holiness was talking about, the values that no matter what practice or not we have, human values, what are those? Kindness, care, compassion, to, to connect in that way. So internally, don't we have to kind of bring that forward? We have to open that up with our heart because if I'm taking responsibility for this if I'm taking the opportunity actually then it has to come from me what am I going to do so then the next group those who believe and practice religion so his holiness writes that they use ethical principles and compassion to guide their lives that's sometimes true and sometimes not, I will say. But even, even if it is true and that that's how they are living, how about, though, if you're talking to a person that has a different religion and they are putting a lot of energy in getting you to want to step in and, uh, uh, and embrace their religion, what do you do with that? How do you stay connected How do you work internally and how do you work with that person? And, you know, many of us have had that experience. It's not so easy Um, and it takes practice, I think. I had an experience, I'll tell you one of mine, I had an experience not so long ago. I was at the airport, I forget what that was about now, but people were inside and I was outside 
in the car waiting in the, you know, the loading place. But I stepped outside of the car and I was just standing there. And there was a fellow that was um, sitting on the bench right, right there by me. And he was probably in his 70s, maybe. And he was with his wife, but she had gone off to do something or I don't know what. But So he was there and he looked at me and he said, are you one of those Hindu, pe- Hindu people? And I said, no, I said, I'm a Buddhist. And he said, so that means that you don't believe in our Lord God, our Savior? And I, you know, I could feel myself like, <laughs> you know. And I said, um, that's correct. And he said, so you're not going to go to heaven? And I said, well, I don't really believe in heaven. <laughs> and he really looked at me like, <laughs> you know, like, what a heathen, I don't know. And he was starting to get a little agitated. And so I kind of broke in and I said, you know, there's really many, many different ways to practice being a kind person and to practice uh, having ethics, many different ways. And he said, yeah. And he said, yeah, but aren't you worried about hell? (laughs) And I said, well, you know, I'm trying to be the very best possible, kindest, compassionate, ethical person that I can be right now, right here, right today. And he said, oh, okay, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And then I said, isn't it wonderful that all of us are so different, but yet we can find a path that's going to work for us? And he said, yeah, it's okay. (laughs) So, So, you know, and that was really a very satisfying conversation that I had. And I had a lot of joy with that because I was working with my mind and I stayed connected with him even though internally I had to work really hard not to disconnect because that's my habit. That's what I would used to do, you know, very easily. And we had a nice little connection there, you know. And he was from Texas and, you know, such a different political and, you know, he had a make... Yeah, yeah, he had that, he had a hat on, you know. And yet, you know, we had a good connection and we understood each other in those moments. Yeah. So isn't that what it takes? It takes that, I think. That kind of not giving up on the other because of what prejudice I have, what discounting I have, what fear I have, you know? That's our practice. And even some thoughts of, I don't want to do that, you know? I don't want to, I don't want to have to do that, you know? So there's the no acceptance piece, you know? How about coming into contact with people that are actively hostile to religion? How would you work with that person to stay connected? Any ideas? 
I would ask them why they feel that way. Mm-hmm. Just listen. Yeah, get into their get into their world. Yeah. We have to get our big eye out of the way. I, I do to to do that. Yeah. So it's interesting. The experience that you shared at first it seems like you know, before you work with your mind, it's almost like an assault. This person is criticizing you, they're mm-hmm. getting in your face and mm-hmm. they're pushing your buttons. Mm-hmm. But actually if you look at it in another way, they're offering this opportunity to connect in a very profound way and they're expressing concern actually. It's concern. It was very clear to me that it was concern. And also they yep. share uh, like a spiritual interest. Yep. So, you know, yep. you really have yep. that in common and Yep. It is a wonderful opportunity to connect in a very meaningful way with someone if if you're able to. If you're able to. Yeah. Yeah. It's another story. Yeah. Yeah. Someone online has given a couple of answers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the first option uh, was imagining that we have more in common than not um, with the person mm-hmm. uh, who is just interested in materialistic things. Mm-hmm. And then for the... Um, Third option in terms of someone who's actively hostile against religion, they say that they, they believe in something, they just don't call a religion or God. So I guess the implication being like connect with them on a level where they believe uh, in some values or some uh, ethics, just they don't term it religion. Oh, so to connect nice. with them on that yeah. level. Yeah. So getting curious about what does touch their heart, what, what brings them joy, what, yeah, that's interesting had the opportunity coming back from Colorado to sit with a man for over an hour who really wanted to convert me. Mm. And we found some common ground. And in the end, he was disappointed that he wasn't able to achieve his goal. And what was the practice for me was to still love him when he turned away. Mm. Because he... He was unhappy at his lack of success, and then when he realized that he wasn't getting anywhere, the the door kind of closed down energetically. Mm. The last maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes of the flight, he was just totally turned away from me. Mm. And I was still like saying, can you, you know, the love was still there, the wishing him well. And when he got up, we shook hands, and I said, Mm. you know, be well, John. Mm -hmm. Be well in your life. Mm -hmm. I'm glad that we met. Mm -hmm. And he said, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. you too. Mm-hmm. You know, so, yeah, yeah. but once again, because yeah. even in, in my heart of hearts, I wanted to connect with him and to share my joy, and he wanted to connect and share his joy, and we found out that we, we can't could only get to a certain place, yeah. and then yeah. it kind of diverged, but it was still, oh, once again, there's no success or failure, there's just how much you can do, yeah. and then to still keep your heart open to even the part when it closes down. Yeah. And that was really um, uh, a reaffirmation that you meet, we meet each other's hearts where we are, and that's good enough. Yeah, yeah. And that's what's enduring. So you can bet you've been thinking about this. He has been thinking about it, too. So, you know, that he comes to the idea of we had a connection. And, you know, thinking how maybe that's the first time he's had a connection with somebody so different, you know. Yeah, it's wonderful. 
uh, today some of us were at the bank, right? People had to open bank accounts. And the amazing thing was um, this woman walked in with her child and I guess she was Mennonite, right? Mm-hmm. That has a yeah, yeah. hair it's covering. A, yeah, yeah. And the moment she saw us nuns, her face just lit up. Like, oh, yeah. here are people who live their faith. Yeah. Like, because you yeah. see them and they all, like, they so do not fit into the bank. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And she immediately came over and put her yeah. hand on my shoulder yeah. like, as if I knew her. Yeah. Nice. And we started chatting. Yeah. You know, she was just so happy. Yeah. And then immediately we talked about the smelter. Yeah. And yeah. So <laughs> on the same page. Yeah. Like that. And yeah. she exchanged names, yeah. you know, and like, yeah. so happy to bump into you. I was like, yeah. wow. Okay. Lovely. Yeah. Yeah, we were from the same group, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Very nice. Yeah. Yeah, those are good examples. Yeah. Beautiful. Let's end with that now. Let's do our dedications.